come before you. We thank you for this day, and we ask you to help us and lead us as we look at the, the word, and that you will show us what you would have us to see from this chapter in James. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come a poor man in vile raiment, and you will respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit you in a good place, and say to the poor man, Stand you here, or sit by my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourself, and are become judges of evil thoughts? So let's look at this first thing that he's talking about. First he says, Don't hold the faith of Jesus with partiality. And this is something that needs to be understood, you know, this respect of persons, partiality. Uh, I'm going to read you what, it's, what the Greek part of that definition is because it was quite interesting. It's the fault of one who, when called on to give judgment, has respect of the outward circumstances of a man and not their intrinsic merit. And the person and prefers as the more worthy, richer, birth privilege, power over one without these qualities. So this whole idea of he's saying you're looking at the outward, not at the intrinsic person. And this is something that happens very easily for us. You know, we look at the outside of somebody and find out that usually the looks don't match the who they are. And this is one of the things I, you know, we look at, you know, what is somebody who is beautiful in the first place to me that beauty has to go deeper than than the, than the appearance you know they have to have that beauty that follows their character as well otherwise to me they're not beautiful and this is kind of what james is saying get to know these people without looking at the outward extremities and how many times have you looked at somebody and you know your first glance at them is, okay, this person is okay, they say all the right things, they do all the right things, they're, they're dressed right, and then you get to know them and find out they're worse than the thug that you overlooked you know, in, their, in what they do. And here is what James is saying, don't look at the outside. You know, the, the true faith of Christ will love the individual beyond what you see. And this is something we need to get into understanding. Uh, we think of somebody like Mother Teresa who spent her entire life ministering to the lowest of the lowest in India. And none of them were dressed right, you know, dressed right according to most people. And, and she's not the only one missionary that's ever gone to the lowest, the, the, the least and most insignificant. And we see this over and over. There are churches that uh, I've seen churches that actually minister to those who look good. You know, and they don't want to have somebody who looks like a bum or, and everything. And I, and I love, I listen to Calvary Chapel all the time. And I love Chuck Smith's you know, testimony when, when the hippies started coming into his church and the, and the deacons and the ushers were trying to keep them from coming in because they didn't wear shoes. They, they you know, had long hair, they smelled a little bit, they might mess up the carpet. He says, well, fine, we'll pull out the carpet if that's your problem. You know, he, and he didn't even like hippies when he first started the ministry either, but God put a love in them for the people to reach out. 
And this is what God does. He's not looking to get those who seem to be perfect in the first place because they're hard to reach. I've shared with you, when I talk to people about Christ, I would rather talk to somebody who knows they're a sinner and wicked than somebody who thinks they're good. Because they don't know that they need God, and it's hard to convince them that they need God because they just point, well, I'm better. I'm better than most of the people I know, and it's a hard person to reach. And we've all had those experiences where we've talked to somebody that says, well, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't need this stuff. And this is a very sad, and here James is saying, you know, don't have respect to these people. And he gives an example. A man comes into the assembly with a, with a gold ring and goodly apparel. Okay, in other words, very rich man. And also a poor man. In vile raiment, which means dirty, ragged. Somebody basically off the street that has nothing. Maybe even has him out of bath for weeks. And you say, hey, come sit in this best place for the rich man. And you tell the other guy, oh, just go stand over in the corner or sit here next to my feet. You know, and James is very sensitive to this whole thing because he is in a poor, a church that has a lot of poor people. And the rich are oppressing them as the Jews. And so he's got a little bit of, little bit of a grind, ax to grind as well. You can see that coming through here. And it says, and you have respect to the person wearing the gay or the bright uh, bright clothing. This is an old word that the definition has changed in over the years. Uh, but bright, splendid, magnificent color that used to be what gay meant, you know, very uh, stand out in the crowd <laughs> type of clothes. And he's saying to him, sit in this good place. And he says, are you not partial in yourself and become judges of evil thoughts? When we are judging people for their appearance, God says that that comes from an evil heart. And the word for evil here is poneros, or poneros, and it means evil to the point of making mischief. And many of us know people that are that evil. They just, they enjoy stirring up the pot. They enjoy making everybody have trouble. And this is what he's talking about. Your, your heart is to that place where you're trying to stir up trouble even in this partiality. Verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But you have insulted the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you in before the judgment seats? Do they not blasphemy the worthy name by which they are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you respect, if you have respect towards people, you commit sin and are convic convicted of the law as transgressors. So here he's going on. He says, hasn't God chosen the poor? And we think about what Jesus said. He said you had to be, come to him as a child, you know, with the faith of a child. And that is hard for a lot of adults to come to God and just in simplicity accept the gospel message. And this is something I see frequently when I share the gospel. Well, you know, it can't be that easy. I've got to do something. Or I won't surrender to God. Or, you know, one person asks, well, how could, how could one person die for all the world? I, don't, I just don't understand it. Basically, they're saying, what can I do? You know, we have all these people that they start looking at it and they come up with all kinds of intellectual excuses. 
And the sad thing is that into what they think is intellectual, number one, has easy answers usually, but it's going to lead them straight into hell. And the poor, those that are willing to just bow down and say, God, I need your help. I was talking with one of the, the inmates uh, the other day, and he was talking about repentance and how you know, he's picked up this big argument right now. There's not enough people preaching repentance in the church. Well, the very idea of turning to Christ and away from your sin is repentance. We're not using the word repent because most people don't know what repent means anyway. And by getting them to confess their sin and turn to Jesus, that is repentance. They're changing their mind. They're turning to God and away from sin. Yes, we'll teach them more about what repentance is and all of that. But when they said repentance to a Jew, the Jew understood what it meant to repent. Okay? Because that was part of their language. It was part of their language to turn from their sin and turn to God. For the Greek and Gentiles, that's a hard thing. You're going to have to teach them what repentance is. Matter of fact, we shared with you, oftentimes you have to teach them who God is. You know, and this is one of the things I talk with people. You know, they, I start talking to them and we go, well, I believe in God. And a lot of times I go, tell me about your God. You know, who is this God that you're worshiping, that you, that you know about? And this is important for us because in this day and age when people use the word God, they're not usually thinking of the God that created the universe who, who is in control of everything and, and sent his son to die for our sins. They're thinking of, a lot of them are thinking of pantheism, that God is everything. I know several people who believe that God is in everything. They won't kill anything. They, won't, they don't even like walking on the, on the grass and the weeds because they're killing things that are God. Okay, That's how extreme some of them will go. Some people are polytheists. They've got many gods. And they just think that God is, there's lots of gods out there. We need to make sure we're kind of pinning them down. Who is the God that you're worshiping? Because people will say, well, the, the Muslims worship the same God as Christians do. They're not even close. When you look at their God and our God, they're not even close to the same God. So we want to be able to define who is this God that you're worshiping? Tell me about the God. How, how do you get in your God's heaven? And start figuring out what do they know? What don't they know? and then share the gospel with them. You know, we're lost sinners, we deserve punishment, Jesus died for us. You know, do you want to accept him as your savior because it's that simple? And see what they say. But here he's saying that you know, they've despised them, they've, they've chosen the God, you know, they've chosen what God has not done, he's chosen the, the poor to be rich, and, he's, and the heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to them. Jesus said that the first shall be last, or many of the first shall be last. And basically he's saying those that are humble exalt themselves in the spiritual world because they're willing to, sh to share, they're willing to serve. And it's amazing to me sometimes how many people aren't willing to humble themselves, aren't willing to serve God, aren't willing to, you know, even, even some good pastors I've seen who just, you know, are, are arrogant and, and not humble. And it's like, you need to just serve. Jesus was a servant. You need to serve. And we need to serve one another. And we see, this is basically what James is saying here. Humble ourselves. You know, we're all equal at the cross. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. There's nobody that's more important intrinsically to God. Now, he's given people gifts. And there are people who use more of their gifts. 
and will get greater blessing because of the gifts they've used. But everybody is equal in God's eyes, equally deserving of punishment and equally deserving of grace. And uh, we need to keep that in mind. He, but, he says, but you have insulted or despised the poor. And he says, do not the rich oppose you and draw you before the judgment. And basically he's saying, the rich are taking you to court. Yeah. And this is a true statement. The rich are much more likely to take you to court for some violation than, than a poor person. Because it costs money, and it did even in those days. It costs money to go to court. And so the rich are more likely to do it than the, than the poor. And he's saying, hey, you know, why would we care about these rich people and give them preferential treatment? They're the ones that are dragging us before the courts. They're the ones that own, own these buildings and charge these exorbitant rents and, and all these things, have the businesses and, and are gouging you. He understood that many rich are out to hurt the poor. And that's a sad thing that, that does happen, unfortunately. It doesn't happen with every rich person. And this is the one thing when we read this, you know, it sounds like he's saying every rich person, but we know there's no such thing as every one of them. There are rich people who care about people. There's rich people who try to help others uh, and that have a good Christian spirit that are trying to, to work with others. But uh, here we go, and then it says they, blame, they blaspheme God, and it says, If you fulfill or complete the royal law according to the scriptures, and just in case we didn't know what the royal law, he tells us, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Okay? This is important. This royal law, most of us think, most people think that this, Jesus is the one that said this, and and. It is actually a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18, where it says, love your neighbor, you know, love God, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two commandments, when Jesus was said, what, these are the two great commandments, he was quoting from Leviticus, because those two fulfill the law. If you love God with every part of your being, then you won't violate any of God's rules toward him. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to be out to hurt your neighbor because you wouldn't hurt yourself. So this is what he's saying. If you do this, you're doing well. And you know, this is the thing that James is really trying to say in all of this is our love for God should expand outward and touch people. Okay? If we love our neighbors as ourselves, we're going to reach out. We're not going to see them get hurt. We're going to help them. We're going to do what we can to see them uh, succeed, see them do better, and not try to take everything. And too, many, too much of the world is always trying to take. Let me have everything. You know, it's uh, the businessman who's trying to put the other businesses completely out of business because he wants all of the business. And we see them oftentimes trying to cut their price, cut their price, cut their price, cut their price, so they'll drive the other guy out of business. And as soon as the other guy's out of business, they raise their prices to exorbitant prices to, to make up what, what they lost. Uh, they try to drive people out of their homes. And we see this a lot in our day now where they're trying to clear out the slums of the poor people so they can build homes for the rich. Condos. Condos and nice, nice places for the rich. But they're out to hurt and not help. 
or even worse than condos, they put it in stores or a mall or, or a casino or something, trying to just say, this is what's important and you're not. And again, partiality that happens in our, in our judicial system, in our government system, our government prefers the wealthy to the poor and in one sense is also trying to enslave the poor. Uh, they, it's amazing to me that they look at welfare and say, we're trying to help these people with this welfare. And really what it's doing is enslaving them. It's making them dependent upon the government so the government can control them. A few years back, uh, President Bush was trying to push all this faith-based ministry where they were giving churches and faith-based places money to serve the poor. Well, that's what they were supposed to do in the first place, so I don't know why they needed government money to do it. But those who took the government money found that it has strings attached to it. And now that we've got another government that is, is, doesn't push faith-based, they're starting to push back on them and say, well, you took this money, now you've got to do these things. And they found out that it hurt them in a great, great manner. And it all comes with this idea of slavery. When you take, take something from somebody else, there's always strings attached to it. And it doesn't always, aren't always good strings. And so we're seeing all of this uh, happen out there. And verse 9, but if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as a transgressor. And this idea, again, of respect is to discriminate. Okay? If I am picking and choosing who is going to be good and bad without really looking at their, the heart of the person, I'm committing sin. And this is a true statement, that we commit sin. And if we're truly loving people, and this is what I say, in our church, I want everybody and anybody to come to church. As long as they're not trying to push their life, you know, sinful lifestyle in, on the church, I don't care who it is. Okay? I want drug dealers, homosexuals, you know, all these people, they're, they're free to come to church. But if the drug dealer comes to church and is trying to deal drugs in church, we've got a problem and they're not going to be allowed to be coming in. If you're coming in trying to uh, commit adultery and pick up somebody's husband or wife, we're going to say we've got a problem here. That's not going to happen. But if you're coming to hear the word of God, I don't care who they are. I want them to hear the word of God because that is what's important. The goal here is to build God's kingdom not try to bring perfect people into the church because all of us would have to leave if that was what we were trying to build, including me. We wouldn't have anybody in the church if we had, had a church for perfect people. Uh, Jesus would be the only one allowed to come in. And he never spent his time with perfect people. He went out to the lost and, and talked to them and, and ate with them and, and led them to himself. So here we are, it says, if we're loving one another, we're not going to be discriminating against one another. We're going to be drawing people in and working on showing this love to them. And it says, verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, is guilty of all. This is what Paul said in, in Romans 3, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Uh, excuse me, wait, 3, uh, For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And here he's taking in one verse saying that same thing. You're telling me you keep all the laws fine, but you violated one? You're guilty. 
And this is something he's trying to make sure people understand. And this, when we're sharing the gospel with people, is something they need to understand. Doesn't matter how perfectly you keep every other law, if you violate one, God says you're guilty. And he says we've all violated at least one. At least one. You know, there's one of the 613 laws that you've committed in, for every single person, and most of us, if we just start with the f first 10 big ones in the Ten Commandments, we've all usually committed many of those, especially when we put the level that Jesus did and say, if you even thought about this activity, you're guilty and for God. So when we take Jesus, I mean, most of us have broken many of them anyway. We've lied, we've, you know, or we've had, uh, uh, we've coveted, you know, and that's without even going to Jesus's standard of it. And so, we, and James is going the same thing. If you commit one sin, you're guilty. And this is supposedly true even in our judicial system. You know, all you have to do is kill one person and you're, and you're guilty of murder. Okay, and you're going to go to prison, supposedly. You know, uh, technically, you're, you're guilty if you have one drunk citation or one alcohol uh, uh, a drug violation. Now we know that in reality they usually give you multiple chances. Uh, I love it when I talk to a prisoner who will tell me that he had one, one time that he got arrested for having uh, an ounce of marijuana and he's in prison. I'm going, yeah, right, tell me another story. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not born yesterday. <laughs> you know, because I know too many people who have had multiple, multiple, multiple occasions before they finally get, you know, picked up and, and arrested. So, but... The system is supposed to be, you, you do wrong, you get punished. You know, that's how our system is built up, and that is how God's system is. You do wrong, you are going to be punished. However, he allowed his son to come to this world, take the punishment for us, so that we could be accepted by him. And he's going to get into that, into that statement. Verse 11, for he, he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, Yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor to the law. So speak you and, do, and so do you as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So we want to look at this. We think, what is the law of liberty? And liberty in scripture is ability to do what we should, not what we want to do. When God says we have liberty, he doesn't mean you can go out and do whatever you want to do. Because if we did whatever we want to do, our flesh will be what leads us in that situation and it will lead us into sin. True Christian liberty is that God says, I've given you freedom to do whatever it is you're doing, but don't use it to hurt others. And Paul says that. You have the freedom to eat the food offered to idol, idols? Fantastic. Don't do it in front of a brother who has a problem with it. And that would go for us. If you have the ability to drink, you know, drink and not get drunk, which is not a problem according to the scriptures, but you know that you're out to dinner with somebody who has a problem with somebody drinking, Paul would say, don't drink. <laughs> don't order the drink that you feel that you have the perfect right to do when you're with somebody who feels it's wrong. Because you're inviting them to judge you and also you to judge them. Okay. 
And we don't need to do that. We don't need to give each other reasons to judge one another. There's, we're going to do it on, automatically on our own anyway. We don't need to make reasons for this. Well, now, if you were if you were just a stronger believer, you'd understand you could do this. And they're thinking, well, you know, I'm just a new believer, but I know right from wrong. And you're, and you get this back and forth between these two people, and and it shouldn't have ever happened. Just you know, it's going to offend somebody. Don't do it. You know, and it's pretty simple. And if you don't know that it's going to offend them, and you accidentally do it, then you just apologize to them and say, hey, I'm sorry that this caused a problem, and and you cease doing it. And this is what Paul was saying about food offered to idols when he was talking to Corinthians because for some of them, some of them said, well, it's just a piece of stone and a, you know, piece of stone covered with gold or silver or wood covered with gold and silver. It's no big deal. Is that whole truth of preaching the gospel that you're around a bunch of folks who are just really opposed? Uh, is it better not to anger them more, just to be quiet and try to set an example? I would follow the Spirit's lead on that. If it's the only time I'm going to be around that that group of people and God opens the door for me to give the gospel, I'm going to share the gospel. If it's a group of people that I hang around with semi-frequently, because hopefully you're not free <laughs> with them all the time, then you wait for certain doors to open and, and take advantage of the doors. Those doors would be from, directly from the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, if you're going out to... To a place uh, once a week to play cards or bowling or whatever, and and these people are anti-God. I would live the life in front of them and take whatever opportunities God gave me to just drop in the gospel message. If I'm going to a party and it's the only time I'm ever going to see somebody and the door is open, I'm going to take full uh, opportunity of that door and maybe make them mad, but but I don't plan to see them very often, so it's not a problem. But if you're getting an urge that you feel from the Holy Spirit, I would hopefully. take it. Because ultimately, I would rather have them mad at me for telling them the gospel than have them go to hell because I didn't say a word. Okay. Now, granted, if I don't say a word, God's going to put somebody else in their life, but it was still an opportunity that I might have been the perfect one. And if I had opened my mouth, maybe they would have responded. If I don't, then God takes plan B and he puts us, the next person in line who's probably not the perfect one to share the gospel. But I will, I want to err on the side of making people angry with me for sharing the gospel than to keep my mouth shut. But again, if it's somebody, I'm on a bowling league and, you know, and my partners on the team are, are adamantly against God, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna live a life for, for them for a couple for those 11, 12, 13 weeks, whatever the bowling league is meeting and not, you know, not getting angry and all the stuff that goes along with a good testimony and take whatever little opportunities I have to share the gospel, okay? But I'm gonna, I've got 13, 14 weeks to be able to share the gospel with them, okay? So I'm gonna take the opportunities God gives me and I'm not gonna come hard, hard full bore. But if it's a one-time opportunity, then I'm gonna come in and give you know, the whole gospel on one shot. Hope that helps. I mean, it's, that's how I would do it. But most of it is listening to God. You know, if God says don't do it, don't do it. And the other, but he's called us to make disciples. I would, in this particular case, I would say God has to tell me not to. Really put a check in my spirit not to before I would not but share sure the gospel. Like we're talking about right now. That is one of the gifts of the spirit, right? Discernment is a gift of the Spirit. 
And it is something we all have because God will show us when to speak, when not to speak. And sometimes we learn the hard way, you know, we just speak at the wrong time and realize that, well, maybe that wasn't the right. Well, then all of us have that yes. gift to some degree. Yes, so to some degree we all have the discernment because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We need to train ourselves to listen to the Spirit and understand when he's saying go and not go and do and not do. Uh, because, and that a lot of that comes in pray without ceasing. Okay, when I'm with somebody, I'm going to, I may give a quick prayer. God, should I be talking, you know, should I be talking to this person? Should I not be talking? What should I talk about? And the more we're in touch with God, the more we're going to be listening to the Spirit. The more we're away from God, the more we won't be listening to the Spirit because He's only going to talk to us when we are in a relationship with Him, close relationship with Him. And it just takes time. You know, and if I'm going to err, I want to err by sharing the gospel rather than by being silent. Okay? And I think that's very important because I'm called to share the gospel. But even in that situation, if, if I don't have any other indication, I would rather err on sharing the gospel with them every time and having them mad at me than to never get the opportunity because I'm waiting for the perfect opportunity. And this is because Paul, at the end of his life, said, I thank God that I am not guilty of the blood of any man, which means that he shared the gospel, or at least he felt he had shared the gospel with everybody that God had told him to share the gospel with. Does that mean Paul was every moment of every day sharing the gospel? I don't think so. I think he was very aware of when he was supposed to share and when he wasn't supposed to share. There's something to be learned from that, too. Even that he spread the gospel and and uh, we tried to kill him many times before. I don't think I've ever been in that situation before. <laughs> no, I've had people get mad at me and want to chase me away from, from the group, but I've never had anybody want to kill me. <laughs> that I know of, anyway. But yes, I mean, the key to this all is listening to God and being sensitive. But again, as, as I say, I would rather err on sharing the gospel and be wrong than to not share the gospel and be wrong. Okay, because at least I've planted a seed. Even if it's angry and they're mad at me, at least I've planted a seed or watered a seed. And just as the same thing, for me personally, I would rather err on the side of grace toward a person than trying to apply law on a person. Are there times to give them, this was what God says, and give them law? Yes, but God is going to have to very clearly tell me, you need to sit down with this person and talk to them about this situation. Once you initiate something like this and you find some resistance, what you've done is you've activated, but it might be better then to back off of this bit. Depends on what God says about the resistance because a lot of times people put up resistance just because they don't want to hear. And so, you, again, it's being sensitive to God on whether Paul never, obviously didn't stop many times <laughs> and, they, and they sent him out. Stephen, even though they were being resistant to the message, did not stop and they stoned him. Okay, so we want to be very careful. Just because we reach resistance does not mean that we're not doing what God wants us to do. So again, it's listening to God and trying to say, what is it you want done? Sometimes you may back off. Sometimes you may push forward. Because the automatic thing from the world and the flesh is, you're talking about God, I don't want to hear it. And up go the walls. Well, it doesn't take much to figure out whether they want to have a good debate with you or whether they're just got a wall there. Yeah, and the more you share the gospel, the more you get used to what you're facing. And when you do street evangelism, you go out two by two 
at least. And the purpose of the second person in the group is, whoever it might be as, as you engage each group, the second person's primary job is to pray for the one talking and presenting the gospel. Their secondary job is if you're talking to three people and only one's interested in the gospel, you engage the other two people and just keep them from you know, stopping the gospel message going forth. And that may mean a full-fledged debate on theology that's just pure debate and you know, for argument's sake, you know, because you want the other person to hear the gospel. But you, you're right, you get used to this. You get used to this. Is this person just listening and are, is hungry? Are they putting up walls that are just the defenses or are they adamantly against what you're doing? And you just have to learn to learn what you're facing. And most of it comes from practice. The more you do it, the more you get ability to sense when to do, when not to do. The great news is the Holy Spirit's going to fill your mouth anyway when you're, when, you're, when you're speaking. And I can tell you many times when I've been just sharing the gospel with somebody and all of a sudden I'm kind of just listening because it's not me in reality speaking, it's the Holy Spirit speaking using my throat. <laughs> you keep doing it. You just keep doing it. You keep doing it because that's what he told the disciples. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And we see that over and over again. When it's time to speak, God will, God will fill your mouth and you'll, and you'll know it's him. But we're not going to be wrong just casting the seed. And so, like I say, if you're going to err, I would rather see people err on the side of spreading the gospel than being silent. Because it's so easy to say, well, I'm just going to be silent because our flesh doesn't want to talk. But we just, we just share with people. We share with people, and it is true, most of the time they're going to come back, you know, especially at first, on people you know. They're going to come back and say, well, you know, who are you to judge me? You know, uh, what, why is your truth more important than my truth, you know, what I believe? But you know, when people talk that way, they're actually under conviction. It's actually a good sign when they're, when they're getting that kind of defensive and angry with you is they're under conviction. Which is why I'm saying I'd rather, get, I'd rather be wrong and, and share the gospel than not share it. Because our silence allows them to continue in the path that they're going. And it's very critical that we just open up. And it may cost us. I mean, we're going to get to the place where it's going to cost us to be able to share the gospel. And that's not too far around the corner, I don't believe. That we're actually going to, act to decide that when we share the gospel, our life may be our forfeit or our liberty may be forfeited. I don't believe it's very far away that that's going to happen, that persecution is coming. But at the same time, persecution is a good thing in, in many ways because it thins out those who claim to be Christians that aren't. So those who are left are more willing to open up and share the gospel and take the punishments that come along. And we see this all the time when the gospel, when persecution hits the church, a revival actually happens because those who are just kind of hanging on the outsides that aren't Christians, they go, well, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to go to jail or be killed because of this. And they leave, which then means each message is more in-depth. The Holy Spirit is moving. And then people go out and they share the gospel. James is the... Is the the head pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but you get saved and you lose your business and you lose your family because you got saved. So they're in the middle of persecution. And we see that persecution actually helps the church in many ways. Now, it hurts in some ways too, but it helps more than it hurts as far as bringing spirituality out. 
And so, and that doesn't mean we, we don't want, that we want persecution necessarily, but it does bring out the Holy Spirit in people and cleans out the dead, the dead wood. And in America, that means most churches will lose probably the majority of their, of their congregations because there's that many people that aren't saved in the average church. Uh, Barnum says he believes it's 50 to 60% of the average church is not saved. And I think he's being too generous. I think it's much higher than in the average church. Now, there are good, church, you know, there are good churches where the gospel is preached. The percentage will probably be closer to what he says. But there's a lot of churches where the gospel is not presented at all. But even beyond that, even people who go to church on a, on a weekly basis, many of them aren't saved. And they're going to church because it's a good thing, it looks good, it feels good, they can network with people. Uh, they might even, as we see later on in this chapter, you know, say they believe in God, and he's going to say the devils believe in God. So just that belief is not enough. And so we see this whole thing of what does it mean to be saved? And in the Western church, it's pretty much that you've said the sinner's prayer. Okay? And this is a scary thing because just saying the words are not magic words that instantly change you. It's not abracadabra, you're a Christian. You have to believe completely every part of that statement. I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. That one's the easiest one to get people to believe in. It's not hard to get people to understand that they're a sinner. Even those who want to do more good than bad know that they have sinned and, and done wrong things. The, the next part is that you deserve punishment and this is the one that a lot of people will stop at that point. You know, well, I'm better than most. I don't deserve to be punished. I do more good than bad. Uh, I mean God, God's just going to put it on a scale of judgment and, and see that I'm a basically good person. So that second one is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow is that you made a, you committed sin you deserve punishment okay and then the last one of course is Jesus paid the price because once you've gone through the first two you your flesh wants to say well fine I'm a sinner I deserve punishment but what can I do to to please him but this is so important salvation is the key that we're looking for but it it's got to be real and salvation leads to a relationship with Jesus. We get into the Word, and it's amazing when somebody gets saved and all of a sudden the Bible becomes alive. Now, you, you used to read it and they were just words, and now you read it and it just jumps off the page at you and says, here is truth, here is how you live, here's, and it convicts you, and you just read it and there's life there. And I, whenever I come across somebody who says, well, I just don't understand the Bible, I'm going, well, then we need to get you in the relationship with Jesus. Plain and simple. And your life comes alive. Your, your life comes alive. Your, the word comes alive. Prayers becomes easier to do. The desire to be with God's people is there. You know, when we are dealing with people who don't want to be with God's people, that's an indication that there's something wrong with their relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying they don't have one, but there's something wrong if you're not wanting to be with God's people. I don't come to church because I have to come to church. I come to church because I want to come to church. I want to be with everybody. And this is where the importance comes in. We're living godly lives, not, and this is what James is saying in this whole section as we get into it, to work, you know, his faith being shown by works. We don't do the works for God because we have to. We do them because of who he is in us, and it's just the natural expression of 
helping others, loving others, sharing the gospel with others, reaching out to others. All these things that we do are natural just because of God changing us and caring about people. And we see this whole development that goes on here that says, you know, when somebody can come to church and they all, and it's almost like, you know, I can take it or leave it. You know, even if they show up every week, but, you know, they want to be someplace else rather than at church. They're just doing it because it, it's the God thing to do. You know, you got to give my, got to give my time into God each week. You know, I got to do my one hour of service to God and that's, you know, and that's what I'm going to give him. And I've shared with people, I believe that God wants a tithe of our time as well as a tithe of our monies and our, and our, and our skills. And that means if you're going to be in an average week, you know, 12.8 hours a, a week should go to God. If you want to be a stickler about it or two and a half, you know, two and a half hours a day. Most people don't give God anywhere close to a tithe of their time. Many do. You know, there are many that do. That They spend time reading in the Word. They're praying in the Word. They're, they're at services. They're, and they're, they're saying, God, I want to be with you. And this is important. How much do we care about God? How much time does he get? How much of our effort does he get? Is he in, are we in a real relationship with him? The parable of the sower, he sowed the seed. Some of it landed on the, on the road, and the birds immediately took it away. I mean, it didn't even have a chance to even look like it sprouted. Others fell on the stone and sprouted up and looked good for a short time until the sun came out and scorched and, and took it away. Others got into the weeds, literally the cares of this world. All the things that we do and keep us busy. You know, and believe me, I understand that one. That's the one that's easiest to get into, even for those of us who are really committed to God, is to let the weeds of the world choke out what's going on. We get busy in the morning doing whatever and we don't read our Bible, we don't start out in prayer and then we forget God for the day. And get to the end of the day and realize, oh, wow, I forgot to read, I, I, God hasn't been part of my day, no wonder it was such a poor day. Uh, and we've all been there where that's happened to us. At some point we've done something where, you know, we got up late, the power turned off the clock and we're running behind all day or we just got lazy and got out of routine or whatever. Verse 13, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. This is so beautiful, this statement. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Why did God send his son to die for us? His mercy needed to be shown. And for his mercy to be able to come to us, Judgment had to be fulfilled on sin. So he sent his son so that he could have mercy on us. It does have victory, yes, that's part of it, but the word literally means it glories over judgment. And that is powerful. God wants us to see his mercy. He wants to give mercy. We're going to look at some of the Psalms real quick on this, uh, on mercy. Psalm 32 Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass about him, him about. God circles us with his mercy, not getting what we deserve. And this is beautiful that he, when we trust him, he will show mercy. And this is something we all really want. We want God's mercy. Chapter 80, uh, Psalm 85, 
8510, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. God's mercy and his truth re reach out against his righteousness and has peace. God has provided for us. He has reached out. Jesus has come in, with his, in truth and has met righteousness and, and peace with us. God's mercy. You know, the book of Psalms is full of God's mercy. You know, there's a psalm where every, at the tail end of every verse, is, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Maybe Psalm 135. But, you know, God's mercy. He loves us so much that he gives us mercy. And the reason he can give us mercy is that Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. So now his righteousness, his holiness has been, been fulfilled. It, it, our sin had to be paid for. Adam and Eve, as the heads of the, of the, of the human race, gave in to sin. Jesus came and says, I'm the, I'm the king, I'm the head, I'm going to take back that death. I'm going to fulfill the law and meet the, the punishment that the Father has to give out so that you can have mercy. And then along comes grace. And then along comes grace for us. And we get to have his grace and he gives us everything that he has and Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe for the debt that we owed that we couldn't pay. You know, this is something very important. We, there used to be an old track called The Four Spiritual Laws and it showed the big chasm of sin. And it showed people building bridges of their own work and it never, never crossed the chasm. And, but the cross fills the chasm and people can walk across on the cross because Jesus was the only one who met the perfect requirements of the Father. And because he met those perfect requirements, he has a way for us to come before the Father, clothed in his righteousness, and get everything he wanted man to have in the first place. And we get to be in a relationship with the God of the universe and be able to be filled by him and to have that hole in our heart filled that only God can fill. And people will spend time and money and effort trying to fill the hole in their heart. And they'll try to fill it with all kinds of stuff. You know, they'll, they'll, some people try to fill it with religion. Give me a bunch of rules to follow and I'll follow it and try to fill these. Some people try to do it with alcohol and drugs. Some people try to do it with, with any, any form of sin and trying to fill that. Some people will just try to do it with good works. And God says, none of that is enough. It has to be God that fills that hole in our heart. Because that was what was left when we, when we sinned. That hole that only God is able to fill. And that hole is what drives people to seek an answer. Now, it doesn't always drive them to, to God directly, but they will flitter around all kinds of different things to fill it. And God is saying, I'm the one. I'm here, right here. <laughs> Come to me. And he gives everybody that opportunity. And that's what it says, that everybody has heard the truth in some, in some format. And God is saying, I am here. I will be your 
comfort. I will be your deliverer. All right, we're going to end here because we've got a, a lot to go on be, behind this. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we thank you that you give us a chance to be in a relationship with you. Help us to be bright lights that will show people how to come that way and help those who see us to and listen to us have an opportunity to come to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.